Hey, good morning, church. Happy December to all of you. It's already been a wonderful day. Kip, thanks for the songs you and the praise team led us in. And Mark, thanks for the story you shared with us. We heard that in staff meeting this past Monday and just thought, this, is, this story is too good for the church not to hear about this. It's the amazing ways God works. I want to welcome all the guests who were here today. So glad you've joined us. I want to welcome those who are joining us on live stream. Um, I'm going to launch into a four-week series today. I want to spend a few weeks talking about longing as an Advent series, working up to Christmas. And uh, it's so easy for us to just give in to this time of year, to give in to what the secular world thinks about Christmas. It's all about gifts and and try to force people into feelings of gratitude, which I hope there's gratitude in your life. But this is a season of reflection and longing, and I want to just lead us on a journey to give voice to that today. I realize as I've been leading up to this series, even praying through it, that some of the realities I face in my life, and you do too, is that you can't get the joy if you don't experience some longing in your life. That you can't get to a place of freedom if you don't know what desperation looks like. That we can't experience salvation if we don't go through death. That there are a lot of people who want to get straight to resurrection of Jesus without having to go through the death of Jesus, but it doesn't work that way. You can't get to that without experiencing longing, brokenness, to, to deal with the brokenness and pain and rebellion in your own heart to get to a better place. So I want to take us through a few places in Scripture today. I want to begin in Matthew chapter 2, where Matthew and, and Luke are the two people, the two gospel writers who give a little bit of voice to the birth of Jesus, or a lot of voice. And in Matthew chapter 2, it starts with this, that after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in Judea, during the time of, of who? King Herod. I, this isn't just in the time of Herod, this is in the time of King Herod. Herod was a guy of great privilege and great power who they ended up giving him the name king. He was almost, it was because of his privilege and power that he was, uh, entit- in, and entitlement that he was given this name king, almost grafted into the the story of Roman power. They didn't put Herod in charge of his province, so he, he wore the name King Herod. And if you were a Jew in this time, anywhere you went outside and opened your eyes, you could see Rome in some kind of way. There was what was called the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, and it was supposed to spread everywhere. And if you didn't bow down to it, then violence would make you submit to it. And religious leaders responded differently when it came to the power of Rome. There were some religious leaders who said, hey, just go along with the system. Let's not rebel against it. We may die. Let's just go along with it. And other religious leaders who said, no, we need to rebel against this system. It's ungodly, and we need to fully rebel against it, even if it means we die. And others who chose different ways to go about it. If you went outside synagogues, Oftentimes, Romans would come in and they would set up statues outside synagogues. So anywhere you went, there were idols and there were statues reminding you who was in power and who was in control. Do you ever feel like you may be in a season in your life where evil may not be present in you, but anywhere in the world you open up your eyes, you can see evil? It's like it's just pressing in and the voices are around and you can see anywhere it goes. If you lived in that time, that's what it was like. Roman presence was everywhere. Yet there were believers who still believed. And they were longing. And they were believing that a kingdom is on its way. A kingdom that will last for eternity. God is ushering in a new kind of kingdom that Rome's not going to last forever. The kingdom that God's bringing in will last forever. And this is true today. There's no nation that will last throughout eternity. Not even the United States of America. But the kingdom of God will last throughout eternity. And it deserves our full allegiance. And here's how the rest of it goes. In 
After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem, and they asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? Because we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. If you were King Herod with power, do you not? I mean, can you understand how he would receive this as a threat? That these wise people have come to his region, and now they are saying, they've received a word from the divine that a baby has been born, and not only has he been born a king, but he has been born, and they are coming to worship him. So Herod tried to work out a deal. That, hey, I want you to go and find him. And when you find him, let me know where this baby is. And of course, he wanted to know where the baby is because he, he f- received this as a threat. He wanted to do something about it. But God told the wise men to do something differently. And skip to verse 13, and here's how it goes. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up. He said, Take the child and his mother and escape out of Egypt and stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity, who were two years old or under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. And then what was said through the prophet, prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Like you can't experience or celebrate the birth of Jesus without realizing all the brokenness and longing and desperation that the people of God were experiencing. And Bethlehem wasn't a large town, so we don't know how many boys under the age of two were killed, but even if it was a few, you would think that You can imagine the mourning that was happening in that community and the news that spread to let all the other regions know if you say anything about the powers of the world, this may be what happens to you too. I wonder if the people of God, because at this point they had been longing for this Messiah for hundreds of years, how often did they think, is this the bottom? Like, when's it going to turn? Like, if we reach rock bottom, have you ever felt that in your life? Like, things are going so bad in your life, you're like, this has to be it. Like, it can't go any further down than where I am right now with the job or relationships or death or grief. Like, it can't go any further than this. Like, this, this has to be rock bottom, right? It can only be up from here. And then things keep getting worse. And here are the people who have got longing for hundreds of years, and now they hear about the king, the Messiah who has been born. And the next thing they know, babies are dying. But there were people who continued to believe. And they believe knowing this, that if life is to come, God has to be involved. Right? If life is going to come to fruition, if joy and freedom is going to happen, it's not going to be because we start a movement to make it happen. It has to be because of the intervention of God. Now, if you read Matthew chapter 1 and 2, this story sounds familiar to a story in the Old Testament. Go all the way back to the book of Exodus in chapter 1. And these verses are on the screen, but feel free to find them on your own Bible, in your own Bible. In Exodus 1, 6 through 14, you read this. Now Joseph and all of his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. But then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to the people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. 
come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, they'll join with our enemies and they'll fight against us and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramesses. They built cities as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and they spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and work them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor and brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields and all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shipporah and Puah, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that a baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. And I'm going to talk about it more in a couple of weeks as Shipper and Pooh and how they responded to this. But here's what happens in 122. Because the Pharaoh heard that the midwives weren't doing what he told them to do. So then the Pharaoh gave this order to all the people. Every Hebrew boy that is born you must now throw into the Nile. But let every girl live. Uh, you read stories like this, and it sounds so much like the birth narrative of Jesus. In fact, let me show you a few similarities between Jesus' birth and Moses' birth. In both of these births, you had the powers of the world. You had, if you'll go to the next slide, you had both Pharaoh and Herod who commanded for children to be killed because there was a threat. You had babies die. Secondly, what you have is uh, both Moses and Jesus are rescued at birth. Moses was rescued by being placed in a basket and floating down a river. Jesus was rescued by a divine voice that told Joseph in a dream, take, take your new baby and get out of here and go to Egypt. So the first couple of years of Jesus' life, he and his family are on the run. Refugees going from one country to another. Thirdly, you have Joseph and Moses who were informed by a divine when to leave Egypt. Moses is informed by God at the age of 80 of it's time to go back to rescue your people. Joseph, Jesus' earthly father, was, uh, received a, another dream from the divine telling him it's time now for you to leave Egypt. And fourthly, in both Exodus and in the birth of Jesus, you have people who are longing. Longing for hope, longing for salvation. And this wasn't a longing because they had a few months that weren't going well. In the book of Exodus, you have people who had been slaves for over 440 years. Which makes me ask, like, how did stories of God survive and stay alive? And then I, I just can't help but then begin to imagine that at some point there were grandmas and grandpas who were sitting down with their kids and grandkids telling them, hey, there is a God who created the world and he still creates. There's a God who still loves us and he's going to hear us. And somehow these stories and these songs and these prayers survive one generation after another. You would think that about year 350 there would be grandkids and kids who would say, yeah, this God isn't going to help us. Yet there were people who were saying, no, 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 we've got to keep believing, keep pressing, keep singing these songs, keep lamenting, believing that God is going to hear us one day. Somebody encouraged me, somebody wrote a while back, and they suggested that one way to see the Bible is that the Bible is an oppression narrative. An oppression narrative. And what they meant is this, that a lot of the Old Testament, like the book of Exodus, or almost all of the prophets were written in a time where the people of God were in captivity of some sort. And the entire New Testament, all 27 books, were written in a time when the Roman Empire was king. Yet here are people throughout the entire Bible who, even though they struggled sometimes, there were people in those generations who continued to cling to hope and faith and longing and desperation, believing that if salvation comes, God's the only one who can bring it. 
Trying to tell the next generation, hey, keep believing. Even when you can't see it, we're clinging to hope that God is going to do something. So like the, on the front of your bulletin, you have this girl who's looking out this window. And I'm sure you've been there before, placing your hand on a window of the weatherman told you it's going to snow. And we're looking out the window to see if it is going to snow. Looking out, waiting for someone to come or looking out a window, seeing people go. But it's this moment where you can almost see the people in the book of Exodus looking out a window, wondering when salvation's going to come. The people at the time of the birth of Jesus, the Jews looking out windows, wondering when the kingdom of God, when, when it's going to come. Because what you have in the book of Exodus and what you have in the book of Matthew are people in power who experience threats to their power and decided to try to do something about it to eliminate anything that was a threat to their power. And we've seen this play out all over the world, right? In many of our lifetimes. With Hitler, or you know stories that have happened in Rwanda and the Sudan, and other places in the world where there are these abuses of power because we know that history repeats itself. History repeats itself with abuse of power and the oppression of people and robbing people of dignity. Do you know when African Americans first received the right to vote? And the answer is not 1965 with the Voting Rights Act. It was in the 1870s, shortly after the Civil War, when there were amendments made to the Constitution that said you cannot deny people the right to vote based on race or color of skin. In fact, in the early 1890s down in Mississippi, 86 to 80 percent of African Americans received their voting registration cards. But what happened is the powers who were over the United States at the time, in the 70s and 80s and 90s, 1870s and 80s, felt a threat to power. So many states, especially states in the South, began to make amendments. They found loopholes in the amendments that had already been made. So they added other laws that for you to vote, you have to own land and pay, pay prices to vote. And there were fees to vote. And and there were literacy tests. So now that those were in place for day, because people knew that if you had the right to vote, you could also sit on a jury. And if you had the right to vote, you could end up running for offices. And there was a threat to power because this is the way it's happened all over the world. Even today, when there are major threats to power, people in power begin to do things which allows oppression and injustices to exist throughout the world even today. And wherever these exist, there is a longing from individuals and a longing from people for something better for forms of freedom. So in Exodus 2, what you have, and this has become one of my favorite places in the Bible, Exodus 2, in verse 23 and 25, it says this. During that long period, we're talking over 400 years, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery, and they cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites, and God was concerned about them. If you go to that next slide, I want you just to see it. I just wrote out a few of these verses. Because here's how they go. God heard. This isn't a reference. This isn't suggesting that God had like a bursted eardrum for a while or that God couldn't hear or there was some chasm between people and God so prayers couldn't come to God. This is the kind of hearing where now it's like active listening. God's going to do something about it. 
It says God remembered, and this isn't that God suffered from amnesia or something happened that jogged God's memory, but now God remembered in a way where there's going to be action. There's going to be, he, he's actively attentive. God saw, which is the Hebrew word ra'ah, which isn't just the way you're looking on this stage, seeing me with your eyes, but you're looking at something knowing you've, you're, you're going to do something about it, knowing that what you see is now going to lend your heart to bend towards kindness and movement and activity. And it says God God knew, God was concerned about them, and God was going to do something. That wherever you see oppression and injustice and a longing for freedom and salvation, know that God is on the move. Because throughout the history of the world, in the Bible and today, where history repeats itself, so does God. Where history repeats itself by hurting people or holding down people, so does God. That if you're in a place in your own life, in a place of brokenness, it's not a bad place to be when you think about my groans are being heard by God and God is the only one who can do something about this. Romans 8 has been a place I've gone to quite a bit that talks about this. And, and let me just read a couple of places. In Romans 8, 22, it says that we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to this present time. And not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. And you skip to verse 26. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit intercedes for us through wordless groans. In Romans 8, creation groans, people groan, and the Spirit's groan. The Spirit groans. And this isn't a groaning of of just an utterance. It's, it's more than just a sound. It's an expression. It's a groaning that something in my life isn't right. Or it's a groaning of something in the world isn't right. And for those of you who are struggling in your prayer life right now, and sometimes I have people come to me and they're like, Josh, here's the brokenness going on in my life. I don't even know how to pray. My response is, can you just sit with God and offer up a sound? Because according to Romans 8, the Spirit of God knows exactly what to do with moments like these. That if all you have to offer up to God is just an utterance, that it is an acceptable form of prayer in the heavens. It's like the Spirit of God is saying, hey, just that, that's all I need to begin to intercede and do something in your life. And the Spirit knows how to take that sound and place it up to God. These groans are more than the groans some of you may be feeling right now. You know that you're hungering for some barbecue or Gus's fried chicken for lunch. Paul says it's the groan of childbirth. Which I've said it before. I think there are going to be women who find Paul in heaven one day and they're like, not just one, but multiple references to childbirth, Paul? You have no clue what it felt like, man. We've had two kids. I was in the delivery room for both of them. I have heard the groans of childbirth. One time Casey squeezed my hand so hard I almost responded with, you have no clue how bad that just hurt, Casey. I preached probably five years ago, I preached a sermon on Romans 8, and I talked about the groans of creation. And after that sermon, Eric Wilson, who was on staff here for a while, came up to me and he said, man, great sermon, and he pointed out a few things that he hadn't thought about. But then Eric said, hey man, next time you preach Romans 8, or next time you preach about longing or groaning, you've got to read a woman named Barbara Holmes who talks about how groaning was this language that held slaves together on slave ships. So because of Eric, I went and I read Barbara Holmes. 
And she talks about hundreds of years ago when slaves were put on slave ships, a lot of times they would put slaves on slave ships who did not speak the same language because they didn't want them conversing on the ships, either forming plots or plans. So they put them on there and they weren't able to speak, but somehow they were all able to speak the language of the groan. And Barbara Holmes talks about this black groan that held slaves together and gave them like this universal language. So I began to think, even though she didn't suggest that, but that this was a language that was developed in the times of slavery. A few days ago, I traveled down to Mississippi with about 40 leaders from all the way from California to South Carolina. We went to Glendora, Mississippi, where it's a place in 1955, and some of you remember this story. You were alive then, where there was a 14-year-old boy named Emmett Till who had traveled down from Chicago to Mississippi to visit some relatives and either because he was trying to push on some of the Jim Crow laws or wasn't aware of them, he's at the age of 14, he went into a candy shop with some of his cousins and he ended up speaking to a 20-year-old white lady. Now, some say that he whistled at her or he said bye. Most accounts say he spoke to her in some way. But the 20-year-old white woman who was working in the candy store went home and told her husband that this young boy named Emmett Till not only spoke to her, but flirted with her and tried to put his arm around her waist and give her a hug. So a few days later, her husband and a half-brother end up kidnapping Emmett Till, taking him to a, to a shed where they went on for hours to torture him and kill him and then attach him to a, to a, to a, a, a heavy fan and placed him in a river where his body was found a few days later. His mother took his body back up to Chicago, and some of you remember this. She said that the funeral, there was going to be an open casket. She wanted the world to see the oppression and the injustice. A month later, the two men were arrested and were charged for murder. But it was a jury of 12 white men who, after hearing accounts and from all these attorneys, the 12 white men went to a room and it only took them 67 minutes to determine that he was, these men were not guilty. And they said the only reason it took 67 minutes is because they took time to sip on some Cokes before they went back in the room. A couple of months later, the two white men who had murdered Emmett, they confessed in a magazine after they were paid thousands of dollars, they confessed about the murder. So I'm down in Glendora with 40 leaders, and we go to this shed, which is now a museum. You can go visit there. And we're in this place where many think this is where this 14-year-old's body was tortured and killed. And a woman stood up to lead us in a prayer time, and she was a woman from L.A., and she was a black lady from L.A. I've known her for a few years. And she stood up to lead us in a prayer time. And as she did, she said this, Hey, today we are not going to pray with words. For the next few minutes, we are going to pray with groans. So she led us into this prayer time and she said, No words. We're just going to offer up to God groans. And I've got to tell you, those of us who were white in that room had no clue what to do in the moment. But all these other black voices begin to offer up prayers of groans and moans before God. It was wild. And beautiful, and somehow this spiritual moment and connection happened. Back in January, I was in Ethiopia. And they woke us up. About 35 of us were on this trip. 35 preachers, pastors, church leaders. 
And they said, hey, we need to be in the lobby at 9.30. We're going to an Ethiopian English-speaking church at 10 o'clock. We thought we were going to a small church. We showed up in this warehouse with thousands of people. And we showed up five minutes early, and we could not find a seat in the warehouse. So my first thought was, they don't do church like we do church in America. <laughs> five minutes early, and there's not a seat in the house, right? It was packed. It was a three-hour worship service in a warehouse with no AC. And it was three of the best hours of my life to see these people who came from a lot of villages. I mean, they were giving God everything they had. At one point, the pastor in this church, he stood up and he said, hey, um, we didn't know it was going to happen today, but we have a village that's here in Ethiopia. By the way, I mean, Ethiopian eunuch. Christian, Christian roots go back in Ethiopia to the first century. And he said, we have a tribe here, and there's a tribal dance that they have performed in their church since the seventh century. And they're here today, and we have asked them to perform their tribal dance for us. And in my spirit, I was kind of torn in the moment because I was like, I have never been in a church service in my entire life when someone stood up and said, we've got a tribal dance in church today. So one of my thoughts was, I definitely was raised in white church because tri tribal and dances isn't part of my culture at all. Like, I grew up in a church where you could get in trouble if you swayed in church. You could get the thump on the ear, like, don't move. If you start moving like that, next thing we know, we're going to be holding snakes in church, right? Slippery slope. And this group of about 40 people from this tribe stood up on stage. And this tribal dance went on for 25 minutes. And they didn't speak words, but for 25 minutes, it was like they, it was the gospel just being lived out. There were moments when the pace of their dance was slow, and that it was deep with grief and longing and desperation. And there were other moments when their dance was fast, and there was a fast rhythm, and there was joy and excitement. It was like every emotion that is present in this room right now was experienced in how they were expressing themselves on the stage. And throughout that entire 25-minute tribal dance, there was this groan that you could hear coming from people. Because sometimes it's all we have to offer up to God. So my job as a preacher or as a friend, as a follower of Jesus, is that when I hear someone else who expresses a groan around me, my job is not to put a grade on the groan. Like, man, that's really only a C. Like, you don't need a groan over that. It's not my job to, at first, it's not my job to do that. It's to sit with it because most of the time, groan is an expression of something deep in the soul. It's been explained to me that humming happens up here in the head, but groaning is something that comes deep from the soul. So what happens when we hear groans because of things that are going on in the society or the world or our city, it's not to look at people and say if it's worth groaning over or not. It's to sit with it for a minute because if it's in an expression, it's coming from a deep place. And even in our churches, we've got to give more space for people to feel like this is a place where I can express any kind of longing or groaning or moaning that is happening in my life because something isn't right and I don't feel like I'm going to be judged because of it. And when we long and when we groan and when we moan in the presence of God, we know that God is hearing us and he's looking down on us. And we offer him up to God believing that 
It's only through the actions of God that any form of salvation and freedom will come. We're in this room today and we've taken communion and we have people who are longing for all different things. We're longing for healing, for peace, for recovery, for deliverance, for joy. We have singles in this room who may be longing for marriage and we have singles who are longing for families and relatives to quit asking them about marriage. We have people longing for purpose and worth and reconciliation and for families and for no more bad news and for wrongs to be made right, for relief from pain, release from stress, for unity, help, focus, for love to spread. And we bring all these longings believing that the cross can hold them together. Asking God to do something about it. So as much as you're going to see commercials over the next few weeks calling us into this Christmas spirit and singing joyful songs Take time this month to pause and reflect that Jesus was born in a time where people were longing. And we have a world and even a church full of people who were longing to, knowing that God is the only one who can step into any kind of longing and do something about it. So may this be the cry of our heart today. I want to ask the elders and prayer leaders, if you will, go in, around the room to receive people for prayer. And if there's something on your heart, you may choose to bring it in front of this entire church today. But there may be something in your life that you don't feel comfortable bringing it in front of the church, and that's why we provide these other places for you to go and just to be with men and women who are willing to receive you, to listen to you, and to bless you by taking you to the presence of God in prayer. So church, let's stand together and let's sing a song or two.